Welcome to my podcast from behind the scenes at the real Downton Abbey. And today I'm sitting with a wonderful guest, Victoria Hislop, who has entranced us all with her stories about Greece. And of course, her first book, now in the library at the real Downton Abbey, was The Island, which I loved. I think I read it in a day. So, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today. The Island was your first book, Absolutely. wasn't it? Absolutely, okay. yes, no, very much so. I mean, I never in my whole life, until I was 45, imagined I would write a novel. So, no, there are no kind of hidden manuscripts from, you know, there's no juvenilia anywhere. That was it. That was my first book. And you have lived the dream of so many other writers such as myself in terms that I think that book has now sold over 8 million copies in probably 30 or 40 languages. Yes, in 40 languages. In 40 languages. Yes. I mean, I can't read most of them, so I have no <laughs> idea even where, whether it's well translated. But it's it's led to lots of travel for me. I have been to many of those countries to promote it and to meet readers. So, yes, it was the book that changed my life, there's no doubt. And I was very, very fortunate to stumble on a, a place that inspired me, because it was literally that tiny island that was the starting point um, to telling the story. It is an amazing book, and if you haven't read it, anyone listening, please read it. Read it again, or read some of the subsequent books, but I think it has such a strong sense of place, that tiny island, and I can sort of feel in your writing the the skies of Greece and the sea and the way they crossed over to the island, the seasons of it, the dryness of the air, the colours of the of the houses in which they lived. I think that is what meant that I couldn't put your book down. Oh, that's a wonderful compliment, really, because I think place is a character. And I've always... I felt that since, you know, in my own reading... I love books such as, let's say, Wuthering Heights, where the house itself is a character and it sort of influences how people behave and and what they're like. And I felt, you know, I really do feel that the climate and the light and the topography of Greece makes Greeks who they are. So I, I couldn't have reset that book, let's say, in the Sussex countryside. It's very much... A story of a of a physical place. So I'm glad of that island. That. And if you haven't read it, it's about where those who had leprosy were sent. So they were sent away. They were ostracized. They were isolated. And then they created a society together with a structure. And they had to welcome new inmates and bury those who sadly died with a doctor who came to and fro. So. It was an extraordinary story which then came off the island as better cures for leprosy were found. Yes, I mean, it is a very tough story. So I was quite, I suppose, overwhelmed by the response to it because at the beginning it wasn't snapped up by a publisher. They didn't think, oh, this is, this is going to be a bestseller, a story about an incurable disease. It was quite the opposite. It took um, quite a long time to find anyone to take an interest in it. 
because leprosy has a stigma attached to it. Unlike any other disease, people are, have a fear of it and they, the people with it are shunned. So it had all sorts of kind of baggage with it, the idea for the, for the book. But eventually I found somebody who could see its potential as a story rather than a kind of portrait of a disease because the disease is there but it's about the way people live with it and survive and of course it has a happy ending because the cure is found. So it was it was unusual I think right from the beginning and maybe sometimes readers want to read something that isn't like anything else they've read and it certainly Had you finished the book before you took it to publishers? No, I hadn't. I'd written a synopsis and the first two chapters so they didn't have the whole thing but the synopsis told anybody who wanted to read it that there would be a good conclusion Mm. and that eventually people do leave if they've survived it. But on the way, you know, important characters die. You know, that's, that's the reality of it. So Spina Longa, in a way, is a sort of microcosm of a Greek village in that life is difficult, the elements play quite a big factor in your life. It's not beautiful, sunny, hot weather and blue sky all the time. There are love affairs, there are jealousies, there are children growing up. You know, All the normal things that happen in a Greek village happened in Spinalonga and, of course... In any village, people become ill with something and there'll be deaths and there'll be tragedies. But somehow, all of this taking place on a, an island, probably as big as this beautiful house in terms of the kind of square footage it takes up. So not a very big place for three or four hundred people to live. Yes, and I loved the parts of the story which were told off the island. In some ways, there was so much trauma off the island as well, on the island. I found that contrast fascinating. Yes, because of course Greece, Greece in the 30s, 40s and 50s, which are the decades that it covers um, predominantly, were very, very tough years in Greece. Very, you know, they had terrible poverty after the occupation during the Second World War. And then there was a civil war following that. So, you know... Most people lived at a very kind of basic level and were sustained by family relationships and love and actually the church, you know, played a a big role in people's lives and their kind of ability to hope, you know, they are... Greek orthodoxy was very, very much at the core of Greek society. Yes, there are many, many chapels and churches whenever you go around Greece. I'd always wanted to go to Greece and went there possibly kind of before COVID. Mm, And we had a couple of holidays and one not far from Spinalonga, actually. So we we took a boat not far from the island going around there. It is an extraordinary part of the world with so many resonances and classicism, which has been picked up in this country as well. Absolutely. But tending to be in its in the huge, grandiose architecture of an earlier civilization, yes. rather than a humdrum daily life. Absolutely. Full of challenges and difficulty, which you were portraying. Yes, I mean, the, the classical um, aesthetics that we've adopted everywhere in, in architecture um, and to such great effect come from, you know, many, many thousands of years ago. 
and people often it's an odd thing there's a sort of big gap in the middle with Greece you think of the 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 strong beautiful fluted pillars that are everywhere you look in London and I've seen a few while I've been sitting here in this beautiful house or castle I should say (laughs) and then there's a sort of gap and then 20th century everything has changed you know they don't build like that anymore but there was a time of you know real grandeur and sort of worship of those elements of architecture that just unquestionably are beautiful we never even think do we is that an elegant portico an elegant pillar they just are you know I think the ancient Greeks designed some of the great principles that we still love they had a coherence and a symmetry and Mm. they gave us some sort of reason in the midst of muddled lives I think absolutely so enjoy about it though I'm not a a Greek scholar, unlike many of my predecessors who lived here, who could have spoken, written ancient Greek, and neither my husband nor myself can, but we are surrounded by those references in some of the follies mm-hmm. and everywhere else. So in some ways, the island, which my husband adored as well, it was such a contrast, yet we both loved it. And we're also very fond of going to visit Greece and the Greek people. Mm. And I know that you have become... They, The Greeks have embraced you and they all have. your writings. They have. They've embraced me to the extent that they've made me Greek, which was obviously in the sort of Brexit period was a great gift for me because I have a, a European passport. They made me an honorary citizen back in 2020. And I have an one of these funny things that we resist in this country called an identity card... Um, where I look like a sort of resistance fighter because you have to adopt a very serious face for your identity card photograph in black and white. And I look like probably my grandmother. Um, (laughs) And you have to carry this around with you all the time. That's a law. And then I have my, my Greek passport too. And I have full democratic rights as a Greek citizen, including voting. So it's strange. You know, I feel it's a huge... Honor. Do you have a house now in Greece? I have a house, honest? yes, absolutely. By the sea? Right on the sea. And to me, I love all of Greece. I've travelled extensively and spent many months, you know, going to little towns and villages that even Greeks haven't visited, most of them. Um, but Has my your Greek love, improved? Are you yes, I'm fluent. I'm a fluent Greek speaker. And I started that about 10 years ago. Um simply Fiona, because I was being translated at book presentations mm. and I found it, I'm sure you've had this mm. in other countries, it is an experience that just feels so uncomfortable. Mm. Somebody else saying something, you have no idea what they're saying, mm. that is probably a bit like what you've said, mm. but you're not actually communicating head on with some, mm. with the, the audience or with another person. And I just I don't I don't enjoy this. I I don't want somebody else between me and an audience, or even between me and a, you know another Greek person. And I set about learning, and um, now I speak. I'd say ninety percent fluently. You know, I, I can express anything I want to say. Can you write as well? I can. Yes, yes. I haven't yet. Actually, I, I drafted a children's book in Greek. which was very satisfying. Um, I did a a children's adaptation of The Island, 
called Maria's Island. And I wanted, because it's written really from the point of view of a, a child, um, I felt that was about the level that I could express myself without making big mistakes. So I, I wrote the story as if I was an eight-year-old child. Um, and then actually had to translate it backwards into English. So that was quite fun. So when the island came out, Victoria, was it immediately a, a huge success or did it? Uh, did that happen over time? Um, it had some very good reviews very early on. And as you know, that that's always a lovely mm. boost. Um, and it's the thing, in a sense, that matters more than, let's say, sales because somebody's analysis of what you've written is a very nerve-wracking yeah. moment when you suddenly it's very personal. open a newspaper and somebody that you've never met um, and probably never will has written about your book quite kind yes. of clinically very often. Mm -hmm. they, they don't know that you've almost wept over drafts mm -hmm. or, and, and you've been exhausted with writing it and anxious and all the emotions that go with writing mm -hmm. a book, whether it's fiction or non-fiction. It's mm -hmm. quite a soul-searching exercise. Mm -hmm. And then somebody cool comes mm -hmm. along and reads it and then might say something negative. And, but anyway, that didn't happen to me. I was nervous about it. Um, and I had nice reviews. And then it was a sort of bit of a slow burn to begin with, with the hardback. And then when the paperback came out, it just seemed to have this um, great reception. Own. Yes, and then it was published in Greek and lots of other languages quite quickly after that. So, yeah. But as I always say to people, you, I write the book once and I'd write it the same, every sentence would be the same, whether or not somebody said, oh, that's going to sell a million copies, it doesn't make any difference yes. to the creative process at all. Mm. really doesn't. So I always say to younger writers who are, you know, worrying about whether a book will sell, I say, well, just, you know, write it. Don't write it in order for it to be sold. You're writing it to tell a story. Yes. Yes. And then when you'd written that book, presumably the publisher came back and said, What's your next book? Yes, that, I mean, that is a thing. And that was a and good thing. And that must be quite scary too, and a good thing. Well, it was a, I decided not. not to be scared. Right. Because I thought, I'm in a privileged position. Mm. People have loved this first book. And I already had an idea for another book. It wasn't as though I was gnawing the, edge, you know, yes. the end of my pencil off and um, lying awake at night. I had an idea. Um, so I was kind of enthusiastic about writing again and I knew that nothing I would ever write again would sell in the same way as The Island because that book meant so many things to so many different people and so many different things. It's, it, people mm. interpreted it in all kinds of extraordinary ways so it has it's a little bit of an organic being, The Island. Mm. So my next book was about the Spanish Civil War. You mm. know, I thought, well, I'm not going to shy away from... People can take leprosy, they can take a civil mm. war. Sort of translated that into a fictional mm. context. So, you know, I, mean, I enjoy writing, mm. like you do. You, you, 
you could do other things. You don't have to write, but if you love it, then I do enjoy it. Yeah, you enjoy I it. Myself in it's it. therapy. Yeah. I think writing, but it is. It's an emotional journey, and, and yes. I'm crying because I'm writing the story, and I'm crying because of the effort of writing the story is exhausting. <laughs> yes, it's exhausting, and yet it's I have like no idea going for a long yeah. walk or going for a, a horse ride, cantering. You know, it's mm. tiring. You're using your energies, mm. but you're exhilarated by mm. it, and it's something I always feel if you've written and you enjoy it, it's something that's you can't not do. It's something you'd have to yes. cut a bit of yourself off to stop doing. No, I, I'm, I'm I and, keep um, mulling round where I'm going next the whole time. I've always got so many ideas and then need to focus and see what I yes. am going to do. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's, it, it's time-consuming it as well. It's one of those things that if you actually add up your woman hours writing, it's disproportionate, isn't it? Yes. Really. But it's it's worth it. So how it. long did the island take you to write then, Victoria? It took about three and a half years from the research through to finishing and, and handing in the first draft. So right. I'm slow. I think I am quite slow. But I always have slightly on my shoulder, I think more now perhaps than I did then, the idea that I mustn't get anything that's factual has got well, to be right. Yes, it has. I can't have mm. someone saying, oh, sloppy research. That, yes. that to me, would I would say, I'm really sorry and I'd mm. want to give everyone their, their money back for the mm. book. So research is the bit that takes me more than long, mm. longer than the writing itself. So the book I've just finished of yours is, I think, just out, The Figurine. And again, I was unaware of Greek history. So that was what's so... Because it's so embedded in the story and the characters come out of the history and the sharpness or the the um, different aspects of each character come out of a specific period of Greek history, which again comes across to me very clearly and of which I was unaware because of this gap in my knowledge of the sands that I love to walk on yes. and the classical pillars of ancient Greece. And that, I think you're very... Typical. I mean, all of us go to Greece to escape. Yes. You know, we escape so that we can see mm. the blue skies and swim in lovely clear seas and mm. go around the islands, and it's very idyllic. And I hope I never take away that pleasure from anybody. So it certainly wouldn't be my intention, because I love all those no, things. No, you don't at all, but it's just it enriches it, yeah, because think, you understand more about... Yes, the hinterland. Yes, it is the hinterland. Yes, yeah. and I think when I was first going to Greece in the late 70s, um, you know, I knew nothing. I didn't realise that a, a dictatorship had only recently ended... You know, I remember the Cyprus, um, that was probably one of the first political events that for some reason made a big impression on me. It was so dramatic, you know, when, you know, you had this priest who was the president and suddenly he was deposed and it was on the front pages of our newspapers because of British involvement in Cyprus. But I thought there's so much history like that in, in Greece that occasionally there's a massive drama and then things go back to normal, and then there'll be another one. There's always something a bit larger than life that happens every few years. Um, and I think 
that dictatorship that's the background to the figurine um, was something that intrigued me because it was so much within my lifetime. And ironically, the colonels who were the people who staged the coup and began and ran that dictatorship, these three men, they believed very much in tourism and they built a lot of those very kind of block-style hotels that are still around in Greece today. Um, so they encouraged us all to go and lie on the beach and they were very proud of the law and order that you found when you got there. You know, there was not much crime during that period because there were so many soldiers. So, you know, pros and cons, but mostly cons. I mean, I found I hadn't... It had like it just hadn't kind of I hadn't clocked it because <laughs> mm, you no, associate the world of Greek with democracy. Yes, so it absolutely. Was just, I was they reading it. I was suddenly <laughs> interested enough. I was just kind of stepping back, thinking, "Oh my God! Oh my goodness! Why didn't I think about this? Because yes, I didn't think about it at all." For seven years, they had no democracy. No, you know, until from sixty-seven to seventy-four. You know, no, no voting. People on the left were imprisoned. There was no freedom of the press. Mm. Uh, films were censored. Music was censored. One of the great um, composers, um, Mikis Theodorakis, who wrote the music to Zorba the Greek, which is the very familiar da-dang. And he was always furious because he felt he was only known for two notes and actually he wrote a thousand <laughs> musical compositions. But he was in exile. And, of course, yeah. Melina McCurry... Yes. who was such a great character. You know, she spent the whole of that period more or less um, out of Greece you know, to, to protest and because it wasn't safe for her to be there. So it was a... Yes, I think a lot of Greeks my age would remember it very in great detail, but they don't talk about it, you mm. know. They don't... It's a bit like that thing, you know, we don't talk about the war... Obviously, we do now, but I think for you know young older generations, it was a let's move on, let's forget about it. Um, I think I was thinking about that as well. I was thinking that sometimes when you've gone through such a huge trauma and such grief or pain or loss, that we all try to paper over it and build some scar tissue around it. It's not ignoring it, but it's just how we can continue to live and if it's always raw and open mm. and you're stirring it you can't ever move on or look back at it so I sometimes think when I'm writing I'm choosing stories here from the past not too close for yes. that very reason Absolutely. in order not to reignite the trauma and I used to wonder why my grandfather was in World War Two, and there was never any conversation about mm. anything there but mm. again I think you've built some sort of way of dealing with it. Yes, there's a cushion between and the then and really the now. it doesn't really help necessarily to reopen it mm. and continue to talk about it because some of what was so awful keeps coming back too often. So that's sort of how yes. I think of how you can deal kind with of things it's a, like that. kind of a compromise, isn't it? Cause I think but I see, I felt your lead character, the figurine, there's a mother who left Greece because she didn't know what was going on. But again, she didn't want to keep going through it all again and again because it was going to reignite her wounds and then bits of it float back into her life through the book. That was how I was yes. seeing it. Which I think you have your own glasses on your head when you read, but that's what's so wonderful because you paint it lightly so your own emotions can also 
be involved as you're reading what the characters are going through. I I hope that's how I approach it. And the mother never sits down and kind of delivers, you know, 30 years of tough Greek history to her daughter. Partly because she does want her daughter to love this motherland and to love her, certainly her grandmother. And I think a lot of that is based on my own upbringing and how my mother just fed me little little tidbits rather than giving me too much darkness because I think why do that to a child they will Mm. discover the bits that are important and she the grandchild Helena discovers for herself the depths of kind of evil that lie Mm. within her grandfather so you know she forms her own opinion Mm. but you start with some light as well which is nice yes I mean I have Helena arriving in Athens as an eight-year-old and just Mm. trying to see it through her eyes. I mean, it is lovely sometimes when you're writing. Mm. That's part of the joy of it. You you become someone else, don't you? And you're kind of looking at the world, imagining looking at the world from a different perspective. And what's, you know, what could be nicer than that, really, to use the imagination? And then have you written six, eight books now? Gosh, I've written, including Maria's Island for children, I've written nine Wow. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. This is time. <laughs> if I divide the last years by three, then that's roughly the, yeah. the number it should be. Yeah. <laughs> so. But it must yeah. have been a very different experience for your family as well, and yes. what's happened to you as well. Yes. I mean, the children were kind of growing up. They were eight and ten when I wrote The Island. And by the time they were teenagers, I think with most children, they're quite preoccupied with themselves. And then they went through university and, you know, now they're doing their own careers. They're both actually very good writers in different and ways. And do they enjoy Greece? And, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think they celebrate how important Greece has become for me mm. because we all go there as a family is it just um, you with Greek citizenship or do they gain it as well as being related no, to you? No, no, it's, it's specifically for me. But I'm sure if I really campaigned... to, But actually, I don't think my husband Ian would want it. Mm. You know, I think he had would have to have a... You have to really desire mm. dual nationality because you sort of give up a little bit of the other one. Mm. I don't feel I have two nationalities. I feel I have half Greek, half British. I've mm. got these two sides. So it is quite... an an emotional connection. But what an extraordinary journey for yourself as well, from writing the island and yes, then becoming a Greek is. citizen. No, I, and I was this on the, so the Greek Strictly Come Dancing. Oh my goodness, and I'm so was, sorry I missed that. Don't Can worry. I find it on Google? No, I, I, I do boast about <laughs> it. It was probably my greatest achievement ever, was um, surviving Greek Strictly for nearly 10 weeks. Wow. And um, How many rounds did you make it through then? So I did... Six or seven lives. Crikey. So you train, you know, for the first few weeks and think you're never going to manage a live performance of dancing and then you turn into this other person. Wow. If you ever get invited to do it, have you ever been? No. Well, I'm sure I wouldn't be. I think... No, I don't if, think so at know, all. But I'm very happy to I, I Google see YouTube you. and see you. I can you. see you. It is, it is transformative. It really is. And I think you'd look amazing in the, <laughs> the costumes, you know, the elegance. Costumes. I think my sisters would have such 
fun. And make, uh, they would just cry with laughter so much. I didn't would they? <laughs> you think so, but actually they... You, you wipe the smiles off their faces, I bet, after a week too. No, so that, I think that was when I felt most Greek, when I was in this huge TV studio with probably eight... They have a huge crew, 80 people produce that show, wherever it happens around the world. There were no compromise, no, no sort of extra help for me because I was British. You know, I was, that was when I was treated like a Greek. So that, that I think, was the apotheosis of my Greek... Uh, life was being on Dancing with the Stars. And my son still does this hilarious impression of the voice that used to read, Victoria Kiktelemachos, dance the salsa. And he had this very heavy Greek accent. And William just used to find it killingly funny that there I was on Greek TV. Yes, I imagine um, it must being, have been. Being spun around by this Greek and guy. And were you wearing a sparkly costume and everything Oh, yes, else? every oh, yeah. week. Sparklier and sparklier. You know, the sequins were flying around the room. How amazing. How amazing. <laughs> anyway, that's a long way away from my writing, but it, you know, it's all about life and But and, and colour. You know, hmm. and there were scenes in, your, in, well, in the island, actually, to start with, with dancing. I mean, it's yes, always Yes, Greek because, dancing, yes. absolutely. Very yeah. significant part of particularly yes. island culture. Yes. Every island has its own particular dances that are very specific and only come from there, and only the people who live there seem to be able to do them. They're very complex. Mm. Obviously, they, they all happen in a circle. Mm. So it's almost like you're uniting... A whole, it's very symbolic, really. You, you, the whole village unites. I was in a lucky circle. enough to go to a school where we were oh. taught national dancing of different countries, Wonderful. and one of them was obviously Greek. I've, I've, I've always felt very mm. lucky. So there was, you know, we were taught Greek dancing or um, Polish or yes. different national dances, which was fascinating and thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. You know, until the age of eleven when I went to grown-up school. Yeah. But um, so I, you know, we all wore these gaily coloured costumes. Wonderful, wonderful. amazing. There's, there's no really, other really feeling positive. that no. I think unites yes. people. And we don't really do that anymore. Well, I do more. Scottish dancing. Oh, do Scottish here, dancing. I, of course, love it. I do a Burns night. Oh, do and you? It is hysterical. Oh gosh. And it just brings. It doesn't matter how old you are. Or anything no, else. that's the other wonderful thing about that kind of dancing yes. is that. You can have a four-year-old with a 94-year-old. Precisely. And it's very, very life-enhancing. It, it is unifies, very life-enhancing. unifies everyone, everyone together and it's completely yes. mad. Rather wonderful. Marvellous. So, Victoria, you have been so embraced by the Greek sunshine, the Greek people and a Greek citizen. And I wonder if perhaps if there was a Greek writer who came over here and lived in Sussex or wherever... Would they, do you think, be embraced by the local people in the country and be offered English citizenship? <laughs> God, that's a really tough question, actually, because there aren't really precedents for that. But I know many, I have many Greek friends who are in Britain um, who've made their lives here, who are passionate Anglophiles. And the ones who've made their lives here, you know, I've actually sponsored... Um, one of them through the citizenship process and he is now a British citizen and very proud of it but he had to work hard it wasn't an honorary 
mm. um, thing. He had to know all sorts of questions about Britain that I didn't know the answers to. Um, but in terms of writing, I think it would be interesting to get some Greek writers to celebrate to, to some put, aspect of yes, it. Yes, yeah. I mean, but there are absolutely for sure many Greeks who passionately love this country mm. and see everything that's good in it and who are possibly a bit more negative about Greece. You know, they, they've really mm. made their lives and they have no intention of going back and um, they love all that Britain has to offer them and um, without reservation, which I always rather love. You know, they very mm. often make me look at Britain in a very positive light because they say, when you look at this, the transport works well. It's not working very well. That wasn't a good example. (laughs) But, you know, they love politeness. They love the fact that we drive more carefully, that, um, you know, things work. And, you know, they've taught me, oddly, through their eyes, things Mm. that they love. And they, they love, you know, English tea in a way that the British, we've, Probably we, don't notice it. No, we, we do a bit, but not in yeah. the way that they do. Well, I have to say, we have an awful lot of afternoon tea here, so I appreciate that a lot of people <laughs> who are not English love. And they love Downton Abbey. They love Downton Abbey. Huge, huge fans um, in, in Greece and my Greek friends in, in Britain. And, of course, they think... This is how life was, which is wonderful. Let them think so. <laughs> I think we all need to dream a little bit and to hope a little bit. And I've often thought that this is a little bit of a world apart in Downton Abbey. And even in a sense, when people come to visit, it's a day out, it's time away, mm. it's time to think, to walk, to laugh, to look, to enjoy yourself Absolutely. before returning to the other world. And if they were like me... And I'm saying this absolutely honestly. I shed tears as I was coming up the drive. Oh, thank you. As, well, it, as the house came you. into view, I was just... It completely blew me away. It's, I've, it's always a privilege and a responsibility, and I never take it for granted. And I mm. love the trees and the landscape. Just Quite beautiful, Victoria. So it's, mm. um, it's very an amazing place. place to live, and I love walking in time and space and place and... Which is wonderful. You've shared it with the world. Well, I hope so. I think sharing and finding what we have in common is what's most important to me, probably. There's so many people who just, you know, always poking their fingers at people or criticising. And that's not what should be at the heart of our lives. It's saying, hello, would you like a cup of tea? Yes, well, (laughs) I feel most welcome here. Thank you. Thank you. you. (laughs) Before I close, I would say, because I think I read that you're also involved now in in a leprosy charity. Yes, um, very much so. Which must be very fulfilling, and I'm sure you make an enormous contribution to it. Well, what I hope I do, obviously the fundraising is an important part of it, because although everybody thinks leprosy is a disease of the past, there are still round about 350,000 new cases a year found um, in the world. And those are predominantly in India and Bangladesh and some in South America. Um, And it's completely curable. So what's happened now is that people, because of the stigma, are afraid to come forward for diagnosis. So even if you think you might have it, 
your family or the village where you live will ostracize you because mm. it still is stigma sticks. Mm. So they don't come for diagnosis. And then that's when the associated uh, malformities that we kind of connect with leprosy happen, you know, where you can't feel your hands. So you get blisters, you might burn a hand and... Mm. You know, you lose fingers and toes, and this is a, obviously catastrophic for people's lives. Um, so we fund with lepra doctors who actually go out into rural areas to find people who have leprosy and to teach that message that it's not a terrible thing to have it. You can be cured with a multi-drug therapy that makes you... Um, non you know non infectious after a few weeks and if you can arrest it then you don't get any of the the problems that you know we remember from ben hur and the images that we saw in in that film so it's there's still a lot of work to do with leprosy and fortunately it doesn't happen in europe anymore but it's still still a problem out there and there are millions of people in the world damaged by it so the goal is... Mentally as well none. as physically too. Absolutely. The, mm. um, particularly for uh, women, mm. um, that's what they're finding, that there are women who are afraid or who aren't allowed to go to the clinics by their husbands yeah. because of the shame brings that will the bring on the family. So it's something incredibly primitive and old-fashioned, you know, but the cure is there. So it's a question of teaching that message as well. Shining the light on it so they can mm. come out. Mm. Amazing. Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I love your books. Huge fan. Well, it's wonderful <laughs> And I'm really honoured that you've come and um, we've explored a little bit about Greece and the island and your other books as well. And I know, um, obviously, they're not all about Greece, but I think of you, and obviously you are, as a Greek citizen, a, a real exponent from an extraordinary country and one which I think I better understand from reading your books so thank you it's a great pleasure thank you for having me hello it's lady carnarvon and just to remind you please do subscribe to this podcast then you can have it every time it comes out